chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. We're going to read about two accounts, and these, I would say, are not just hard cases. They are hopeless cases. <laughs> and I don't know where you are in your life right now. Maybe you're going through some deep waters that you say, this is hard. And maybe even a sense you feel a sense of hopelessness for your situation. If that is you this morning, you will identify with two people, one a woman and one a man, who were hopeless. But the thing that changed everything was two things. The presence of Jesus and the power of Jesus. Those are the two things. Us being in the presence of Jesus and experiencing the power of Jesus results in changed lives. Let's read this together and then we'll come back and unpack it. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. And he put them all out. He took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders to not let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Here we see two incredible examples of Jesus turning around two hopeless situations and transforming lives. And so I've kind of broken this down into scenes, three scenes, and as we look at it, we'll 
See, in the first scene, we see the attraction of Jesus. The attraction of Jesus. He comes across by boat from the lake to the other side. This large crowd gathers around, and we've talked about this before. When Jesus shows up, there's a crowd. People are wanting to see him and see what he's doing, the growing influence. People are attracted to him. Two reasons. They're attracted to his words, his teaching, because he teaches as one with authority. And secondly, his works. He's healed people from demons. He's cast demons out of people. He's healed people from illness and disease. He's healed a man with a withered hand. He healed a paralyzed man. We've looked at all those accounts in the early chapters of Mark. Even earlier in this chapter, he heals a demoniac. So he has this growing influence. And he has a profound impact on people's lives. So the attraction of Jesus is his presence. There's something about when Jesus steps on the scene that people are drawn to him and attracted to him. And we said it's his words and his works, but I think there's another aspect of the presence of Jesus that impacts his words and his works, and that is his character. There is something about the character of Jesus that stands out in a crowd. Change lives. It was not just his teaching or his miracles, it was his character. We're going to look a little deeper at Jesus' character in a moment, but right before we do, I want us to take a look at the position of Jairus. Jairus is a synagogue ruler. He comes running to Jesus. He hears that Jesus is there, and he goes running to Jesus, and he falls down at his feet in humility, and he cries out, in desperation, he's hopeless, he's desperate, he's a broken man, he is worried sick about his daughter, and there's something about a father-daughter relationship, isn't there? There's a special connection with a father and a daughter relationship. I want you to feel the impact of this man. He, he sees the, the shadows of death in his daughter, and he doesn't know what to do. He knows no doctor can help, and he runs to Jesus. And Jesus is a controversial man. He's even raised controversy in the synagogue. And here's a synagogue ruler, a man of means, a man of position, who humbles himself. Think about his reputation that's at stake. It's like, what are you doing, man? Get a grip on yourself. What are you doing acting like that? The man was desperate. And in his desperation, he shows us something about his position. What is his position? Humility. It's a position of humility that he's wanting to receive something from Jesus. You see, the presence of Jesus in our lives evokes a response. It evokes a response from us. And this is why James writes, but he gives us more grace that is why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus responds graciously to him. But let's just stop for a moment and consider our own posture. What is our posture in regard to the presence of Jesus? What is it? Is it humility? Do we come to the scripture and say, God, I want to be taught? Or is it one of these other responses? Let me give some other possible postures or attitudes that people approach Jesus with. One is confusion, which really often comes from ignorance. 
They don't have a relationship with Jesus. They're confused. Or they may have honest skepticism. But sometimes the confusion comes from living in deceit. They don't know who they are. They don't know who Jesus is. And life doesn't make sense to them. And so therefore they come and they approach the presence of Jesus with a lot of confusion. A lot of questions, a lot of doubts they don't understand. And that's okay to be an honest skeptic and just come and hear the word of God because the presence of Jesus wants to impact your life. Other people, sadly, their posture toward the presence of Jesus is one of coldness. There's no affection or warmth or interest in the presence of Jesus. The Cambridge English Dictionary says it's a way, coldness is a way of behaving or speaking that does not show kindness, love, or emotion and is not friendly. And I'm going to add toward the presence of Jesus. Because we're talking about coldness toward Jesus. They shrug their shoulders. Who cares? What's the big deal? This Jesus thing is a waste of time. This religious stuff is inconvenient and it cramps my style. And that's their attitude. There's another attitude that comes out. Complacency. People who are self-satisfied, they're especially so accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies in their life. They're complacent. But there's a danger to that complacency. And they don't recognize their own deficiencies. They say, aha, that's not important. Oh, if I have time, I might crack open the Bible if I run out of stuff to do. It doesn't really matter to me. What's the difference? And then there's other people who have a callousness to them. The presence of Jesus provokes a callousness. They're rebellious in their attitude. They walk around with a chip on their shoulder and a cockiness in their step. And that's a dangerous place to be. So let me ask you, what is your posture in regard to the presence of Jesus? I can tell you what it is. It's the same posture that you have when you open the Bible. When you open the scripture and, and humbly say, God, I want you to teach me from your word. If that is not our spirit, then we probably have one of these other things. Coldness, complacency, confusion, callousness. But here, Jaras shows us the position to have in the presence of Jesus. Humility. Humility. Why is Jaras willing to humble himself before Jesus? I think because there's two attributes that stand out with Jesus' character. I said we're going to come back to the character of Jesus. Here we are. There are two attributes that stand out with the character of Jesus that really evokes us to be humbled by Jesus. And that is this, his kindness and his compassion. When you think about the kindness and compassion of Jesus, it ought to evoke humility in us. People are drawn to the kindness and compassion of Christ Notice what it says in our text. This man comes out of the synagogue, Jairus, seeing Jesus, he falls at his feet. In verse 23, 
He earnestly pleads with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. And what does Jesus do? I'll pray for you. Go ahead. I'll go home. No, he goes with him. He gets involved in his life. His kindness and compassion motivates him to action. That's touching. He feels the man's intense agony and his pain. He sees his brokenheartedness. And he's willing to do something about it. Reminds me of the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan from Luke 10, he's traveling from, the man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And a man is beaten and robbed and he's stripped of his clothes and he's left for dead. And then a priest walks by and he sees the man lying there bleeding, half dead. Does he have compassion and kindness? The Bible says he passes by on the other side. And then a Levite comes by. He likewise passes by on the other side. What do you think the priest and Levite's posture is about the presence of Jesus in relationship to someone who's hurting? I'd say with these two men, we see coldness, complacency, and callousness. Jesus said the greatest commandment is what? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. So our love for God and his presence impacts how I look at the broken and the hurting and the lost. If I am not involved in the presence of Jesus and loving Jesus, I'm not going to love the person who's lying in the gutter. I'm not going to worry about the person who's strung out on drugs. I'm not going to worry about that. I mean, you let them go. They're a hopeless case. Do you know what I see in Jesus? He's loving the hopeless case. He likes the hopeless case. He is drawn to the hopeless case. What do we do as a church? Are we moving toward the hopeless cases who are calling out, crying out for help? That's what God wants us to do. You see, I think every generation has its challenges that threatens to extinguish kindness and compassion. There are many things I could talk about that extinguish kindness and compassion. I'm going to mention one, maybe two. One is television. Do you know before 1945, there were less than 10,000 televisions in our country? Less than 10,000. Today, there's over 285 million televisions in our world. Now, I have several, okay? So I'm not saying ban your television, shut it off, never listen. No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying we need to be selective in what we watch and how we watch it. Jeffrey Froh wrote a book called Making Grateful Kids. 
And he writes in there that American child who watches three hours of television programming a day will see 4,380 good acts in a year. But he will see 15,330 acts of violence in that same time. There's strong evidence from research that indicates that abundant exposure to violent programming and video games is linked to aggressive attitudes, values, and behaviors. There was a review done with more than, a, uh, more than 100 studies involving over 130,000 male and female participants from around the world, and the researchers found that violent video games increase aggressive thoughts, angry feelings, bodily arousal, meaning a higher heart rate, and blood pressure, and aggressive behavior. But here's the important part. And that they decrease empathy for others and helping behavior. On the other hand, exposure to pro-social content is linked to good deeds and kindness towards others. This man is half dead in Luke 10. The priest and the Levite went by on the other side. Thankfully, there was a third person who came along. The third person was the Samaritan. If you take the time to look it up, and you can jot it down and look it up later, but Luke chapter 10, in verse 33, it says that the good Samaritan came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then, in verse 36 of Luke chapter 10, it says, Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Good Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Obviously, it was the one he said who showed mercy. The one who showed kindness and compassion. When we look at the presence of Jesus and we see him reaching out to the hopeless, we are supposed to be Christ-like. We need to do the same. The presence of Jesus in us should evoke a kindness and compassion toward the hurting, the broken, the lost, the confused. That's what God is asking us to do. In her memoir about the journey from being a committed lesbian to a committed Christian, Rosaria Butterfield says that as a non-Christian, her impression of evangelical Christians was that they were poor thinkers, judgmental, scornful, and afraid of diversity. After publishing a critique of an evangelical Christian group in her local newspaper, she received an enormous volume of polarized responses. Placing an empty box on each corner of her desk, she began to sort out hate mail in one and fan mail in the other. Then she received a two-page response from a local pastor. It was a kind an inquiring letter, she says. It had a warmth and civility to it in addition to its probing questions. 
She couldn't figure out which box to put the letter in, so she sat it on her desk for seven days. She said it was the kindest letter of opposition she said that I've ever received. Its tone demonstrated that the writer wasn't against her. Eventually, she contacted the pastor and became friends with him and his wife. They talked with me in a way that didn't make me feel erased. Their friendship was an important part of her journey to faith. The biblical witness and Butterfield's testimony should make us wonder how we are doing. Are we generously inclined toward those around us? Or do we think and speak harshly to them or about them? Am I generously inclined toward other drivers, including the guy who just cut me off or the one that's tailgating me? Kindness is no small thing. It yields marvelous fruit. Both in our lives and in the lives of those around us. In Proverbs 21, 21, it says, Whoever pursues righteousness and kindness will find life, righteousness, and honor. Everywhere we go, we should look for opportunities to show kindness and compassion. That's what Jesus did, and that's why he was so attractive. And that's what makes the church attractive. It doesn't mean that we are soft on sin, but we lovingly tell people the truth, and we confront them with truth in love and kindness and compassion. And that draws people to Jesus. In traffic, let the person in. Don't cut them off. In the grocery line, the person that has fewer items, let them up in front of you. That's a challenge for a lot of us. I know I look for the shortest line. So Jesus shows this love and compassion and kindness. So he's on his way to this sick daughter's house. And he gets down a few verses later and we see the second scene, the interruption of a sick woman. He's on his way to help this person. Now he's interrupted. I don't know about you, but I don't like to get interrupted. <laughs> you know, when you got a mission, you got an agenda, you want to get to point A to point B, don't get in my way, Right? I mean, Jesus has got things going on. And here, this woman comes along. What an interruption. And she comes along. Down in verse 24, a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She'd suffered a great deal, the care of many doctors, spent everything she had, and now she's there, slowing him down. No doctor... Could heal her. All treatments had failed, and she spent all her money. She was hopeless. <laughs> and seemingly helpless, nobody was with her. No family, no friends. She was a social outcast because, listen, people with a bleeding disorder were not even allowed in the, in the synagogue. You know why? Because they were considered unclean. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 15, it says they were considered unclean. They weren't allowed around. She was a social outcast. The kind that <laughs> you don't want to be around. She had no resources. 
She's broken. She's weak. Nobody wanted to be around her. And sometimes I think we want people to be cured apart from care. Here's how Henry Nouwen says it. What we see and like to see is cure and change. What we do not see and do not want to see is care. The participation in the pain. The solidarity in the suffering. The sharing in the experience of brokenness. And still cure without care is as dehumanizing as a gift given with a cold heart. Henry Nowen used to be a professor. He taught in different universities, but he decided to begin to work with the broken and the hurting. As Jesus is on his way, this helpless, hopeless case comes along, and she comes up from behind and touches the edge of his garment and is immediately cured. I mean, the power of Jesus, the presence of Jesus and the power of Jesus changes lives. And it doesn't mean that every time we have an illness or something, there are some people who live with illness or chronic pain their whole lives. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. I don't always understand why God heals one and doesn't choose to heal another. It doesn't mean that you lack faith at all. Sometimes it means you have greater faith and that God gives you the grace and, and to endure that but you will ultimately be healed one day <laughs> you will ultimately be healed but he heals this woman and Jesus realizes that power has gone out of him and she comes and casts herself down and says I'm the one I'm the one who touched you and then he uses this endearing term daughter your faith has healed you go in peace so we see here the power of Jesus to heal in this woman's life, and we see the woman's faith. Daughter, a term of endearment. And then he says, go in peace, go in soundness, go in wholeness, go in wellness. Your life has been changed by the power of God. Well, he takes care of that interruption in a pretty good manner. And now he comes to the third scene. He's making his way to Jairus' house. And as he's making his way to Jairus' house, some men come out and say, you know what? Don't need to come now. She's already passed away. You're too late. You know, sometimes don't we think that Jesus arrives too late? I mean, we needed him yesterday, and now it's tomorrow or it's next week, and he seems to show up late. No. He's on time to accomplish his purpose and his plan. And I'll tell you what, sometimes God's timing, I wish it was sooner. There's times in my life I wish it was sooner. But you know what? We need, we need that. God uses it to humble us, to teach us that we need to depend on him. Jesus tells him in verse 36, we see Jarvis' faith. He says, don't be afraid, just believe. We actually hear Jesus telling him, just believe. We actually saw Jarvis' faith earlier when he went and cast himself down 
in front of Jesus, believing that Jesus could heal his daughter. We saw his faith. We also then see, after Jairus' faith, we see the power of Jesus. He takes her by the hand, and he lifts her up. He says, give her something to eat. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Jesus showed his resurrection power. He shows his power over disease by healing the woman. He shows his power over death by raising this 12-year-old girl back to life. He's saying, is there anything I can't do in your life? What a testimony. The presence of Jesus and the power of Jesus in two hopeless cases result in changed lives. I don't know what you're going through and I don't know what people God has placed around you, but undoubtedly there's some people around you who have some hopeless cases, difficult cases, hard cases, but they're not too difficult for the Lord. And regardless of what they're going through, I can guarantee you this, whatever they are going through, God is using to try to knock on their heart's door. Say, you know what, maybe God is trying to show you you can't do this yourself. And God's trying to get in to your life. He's knocking on your heart. He's trying to get into your life. And I know when I go through difficult things in my life personally or in our family, it's then that we drop to our knees. And when things start going smooth, we tend not to drop on our knees. True? I know it's true in my life, and I've got to believe it's true in yours as well. So maybe the fact that God allows these things to come into our life is to remind us that we have to fall on our knees in humility before the Lord. Humility for ourselves so that we can understand the presence of Jesus in our life. And the presence of Jesus today is the presence of his word because he is the word. I have to come to the word of God humbly and receive it day by day. And then I experience his power and his strength for only he can help me with and what only he can help you with. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment. While we do, let me ask you a question. What is your posture toward the presence of Jesus? Do you have a posture of humility when you come before the Lord, when you come into a worship service, when you go to school or go to work on Monday morning, or when you're home alone as a stay-at-home mom, what is your posture toward the presence of Jesus? Is it that I just rush out and I rush into my day and I don't do anything? Or am I pausing and say, you know what, I need to spend a little time in God's word. I need to spend some time in prayer because I'm hopeless apart from Christ. I'm helpless apart from Christ. I need his power and I need his presence in my life. Or has there been a coldness that has come into your life?
you don't have any warmth or affection toward the Word of God. Maybe you haven't opened it in weeks or months. And I can tell you this, if you don't open God's Word on a regular basis, you will find yourself far from God. You will find yourself making decisions that you will regret. Maybe there's a complacency in your life that other things have crowded in and have caused you to lower that priority. Maybe there's a callousness that is taking over. I would encourage you to ask the Lord to humble you. And maybe he's bringing something into your life or maybe he already has brought something into your life that right now is humbling you. You need to thank him for it. Because we need the Lord. What about our response to the hopeless cases around us? People who are hurting, who are broken, who are hopeless, and who ultimately are helpless, maybe because of the addiction they're in, the relationship they're in, the confusion they're in in their life. They don't even know who they are, let alone who God is. And they're looking for somebody who will show the kindness and compassion of Christ. Maybe they're in a same-sex relationship. What do they need? They need Jesus. They need Jesus. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. We are the voice of Jesus. We are the kindness and compassion of Jesus. Maybe the reason that sinners aren't responding as much as we would like isn't the fault of the sinner after all. Maybe the church has more culpability. Maybe we have failed in showing the kindness and compassion of Christ. God help us to do that. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, maybe you're here today and you're confused. Maybe you don't really even know who you are. Maybe you're one way to your parents and you're another way to your friends and you're really confused. You don't have an identity. You don't know who Jesus is. I would encourage you to open your heart to the Lord and continue to come back and hear the word of God where you can come to know who he is and that your identity is found in Christ and not something else, not someone else. So many people try to find their identity in another relationship. That other relationship does not tell you who you are. It only comes from a relationship with Christ. If you try to find it in someone else or something else, you're going to come up short and disappointed and probably hurt. God is there for you. The presence of Jesus is real. And the power of Jesus is he can change your life. He can do things that you cannot do if you will give him room to work.
Would you open your heart to him and give your heart to Jesus? And for those of us who know Jesus, God, help us to exercise the kindness and compassion of Christ. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, .org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.